Hello, my name is Christopher Monroe, and welcome to the Soundtrack to a Life. And welcome back. Welcome back to the Soundtrack to a Life. I am Chris, the host of the show to which you are currently listening. Man, I gotta work on that catchphrase. (laughs) (laughs) With me once again is Chelsea. Say hi, Chelsea. Hello. And Chelsea and I today are listening to AFI's 2003 album, Sing the Sorrow. Chelsea, tell me about this piece of music. What's your relationship with it? So I had a weird relationship with music in general. I didn't have a whole lot of friends growing up, and not a whole lot of peers, so most of my music was my parents' music. And when I found music of my own, it was musicals. I didn't find pop music or radio music until after high school, for the most part, when I started hanging out with people who listened to music. Sing the Sorrow is the first AFI record that I heard in its entirety. And it is their sixth studio release. They have ten studio releases in total, ten EPs, and one live album that they've done since they formed in 1991, when all of the members of that were still in high school. They broke up for a little while while they all went to college, and then reformed before any of them graduated, and none of them did. Um, they became a band and released a bunch of albums and have been touring ever since. My experience with this album is kind of interesting. It was one that Lisa handed me. They had a concert in Edmonton in 2003, and uh, she bought tickets and then handed me their catalog, starting with this album, because it was the album they were touring. We road-tripped to Edmonton in her horribly ancient duster, wherein my seat was held up by a cardboard box filled with stuffed animals. Uh, Yeah, road-tripped to see the show listened to the music on my computer because her car was so old it did not have a CD player, rode the entire way to Edmonton with a laptop in my lap, playing music, and at varying points, sharing headphones while driving the highway up to Edmonton. Saw the show. We were we had seats above the floor. Wildly dynamic audience. Huge pits. At one point, two giant circle pits going in opposite directions. So it looked like a figure eight from above. It was a really neat oh, nice. visually. They were amazing and high energy, fantastic band to see live. This album hit me like a punch. It was probably one of my very first punk records that I ever listened to in its entirety. And it's dark and melancholy and sweet. And I always loved it. Though it is not my favorite AFI album. It was my first AFI album. You never forget your first. <laughs> my favorite AFI album is The Art of Drowning, which has a song on it called Ever in a Day, which a lyric is tattooed on my foot. But yeah, this album was their first mainstream album. It uh, was certified platinum. It was their first album to be certified platinum and reached the highest, uh, it was the highest charting album they had. It reached number five on the Billboard Top 100 in 2003. And it stayed on the chart for 51 weeks. 
It's a number of weeks. Yeah, it was almost on the charts for an entire year, which is amazing. Davey Haddock, who is the lead singer and lyricist for the band, is a weird dude. He is uh, an outspoken vegan and animal rights activist, and he has been on covers of vegan magazines as an iconic figure of a very healthy, attractive vegan, which is an interesting note about this dude. There's uh, a lot of that in uh, punk rock. There's a lot of straight-edge performers yeah, who will shy away from drugs or drink or smoking or eating red meat or meat at all in this case. Yeah, um, he had a fairly religious upbringing. Religious themes pop up in his music a lot, as does philosophy. He did a philosophy degree, is what he was doing in school. And weirdly enough, the number three, but I have no idea why. It shows up in his lyrics all the time. He's very focused on that particular number. And I looked, I could not find any reason for that. They used to be, their first few albums were done through Nitro Records, which is uh, Offspring's record label. But this was their first album through DreamWorks. Despite the fact that if you purchase the album, it has the Nitro Records logo on it. I don't know why, it just does. The three singles from this album were Girls Not Grey, uh, The Leaving Song Part 2, and Silver and Cold, with Girls Not Grey being the highest charting. They show up on soundtracks all the time. <laughs> <laughs> like, all the time. They use recurring themes in their music and have this fun habit of thiefing imagery. Their first studio album, which is Answer That and Stay Fashionable, the cover of which looks like the cover of Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> it really does as you're showing it to me. And it's intentional. They, I, it, it would have to be. It's, like, it's a very direct... Super intentional. Their EP for uh, Halloween uh, looks like it fell out of The Nightmare Before Christmas. The Art of Drowning cover. They're very in sync with what's going on in the current media and try and pull it into their imagery, if not their lyrics. They have been described as everything from goth punk to hardcore punk, and almost everything in between, though they don't identify with most of those labels. They consider themselves to be punk band, and that's pretty much it. And they have an interesting collection of influences, which makes me wonder why you've never found this band before. Hit me. The Cure, Joy Division, Sisters of Mercy, and Smiths. I'll buy that. Are the most common influences that pop up. What did you think? I liked it a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners at home, I definitely hid what my opinion of this record was from Chelsea in the week leading up to this recording. I would tell her that I had opinions or that I was developing opinions or taking notes of my opinions, but I wouldn't tell her what I thought so that I could surprise her with it. But yeah, no, it was really good. I really enjoyed it. There's a bigness to this record from the very first moments of the very first song. It immediately fills a room and commands your attention. I was expecting something more stripped down and sped up and attacky from AFI, but this is really self-assured and anthemic. It feels like they're taking cues, speaking of 80s influences, from U2 here. I don't know if it's insulting to compare a band to U2 in 2018. Is there enough goodwill for those guys that it doesn't come off as dismissive? Because I mean it in a really positive way. There are quicker punker songs later on, but they do keep the whole shout-along anthem 
thing throughout, and the guitar lines are coming through in a much more traditional, technical, like a heavy metal than what I expect, if that makes sense to you. It does. It totally makes sense to me. If you connected enough with the, the music to go back and listen to more of their catalog, their first two albums sound like they were written by high school students, that and out. they are fast, and that sped up runaway kind of sound similar to early offspring albums or early green day albums that very fast quick tempo did literally have a song on their second album called i want to get a mohawk but mom won't let me get one which is what it sounds like it's an angry teenager yelling at his mother and it's funny but their first two albums are distinctly musically and lyrically different from the rest of their catalog and it does make sense to me that this is their first major mainstream success. This sounds like a very confident band who have been working together for a lot of years, arriving on the national stage in a very big way. They were in it to win it with this one. This is a very concerted attempt to conquer the world of guitar rock for them. And I'm really glad that it succeeded because it's really... Yeah. Uh, a, a, a really good example of that kind of ambition done right. What venue did you see them in? I saw them in an arena, but I don't remember which one. It was 15 years ago. <laughs> that very much checks out. And I'm glad, because I have in my notes right here, were these guys big enough to sell out stadiums? Because this is very much stadium music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, you need to be on the main stage of a large festival or a stadium that you have sold out in order to really get the full impact of the songs. Yeah. You need 30,000 people around you. Screaming and singing along. Yeah. And they definitely had that. Good. Absolutely. Songs like Silver and Cold, every lyric was sung back to them by the crowd. It was amazing to see. And one of my first live shows, I didn't see a whole lot of music. Prior to this point, I think I'd been to one big festival and one concert. Oh, wow. Yeah, I went to an Edge Fest and I saw Our Lady Peace at the Dome. And that was pretty much it for my concert-going experiences prior to this point. That checks out. <laughs> um, Knowing what you listen to? If you had asked, is this a formative experience in Chelsea's musical taste? Knowing what you listen to when you're choosing music for yourself? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. The band as it is now, because it went through a few changes from four dudes in high school to four dudes in their late 40s, the band as it was at this time had been together 10 years. When they reformed in 93, that lineup, which is Davey Havoc, Adam Carson, Hunter Bergen, and Jade Pudgett, have been together for 10 years at this point and together released four studio albums at this point when they break into mainstream radio play and more mainstream uh, exposure. So they are they're a very tight, cohesive unit yeah, that works really well they're together. They're incredibly tight. Like it, um, it all sounds... Every piece of this record is there for a reason. This feels like music that is very painstakingly assembled, which is not what I'm used to in a punk record. I mentioned last time the difference between music in 1995-96 and music even 10 years later. This era of music sounds 
so produced. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing necessarily, but it's really noteworthy given Punk's roots. The dude's voice occasionally sounds raw, but that sounds like a very deliberate choice on his part. And everything else is very precise and very clean and very methodical. Which was something of a barrier? Because that is not my punk. No. Um, it's not a bad thing, and this is absolutely somebody's punk. The person who discovered this is their first punk record begins a lifelong love of punk, the same way that I did with different records. But it's not mine. That's fair. In a way that really makes me look forward to how they're going to translate these songs live when we see them. Next month. Yeah. They sound... Very, very similar life. Do they? Do yeah. they actually keep it together? Yeah. Yeah. They're a very tight, very well rehearsed, well fitted band. Hopefully, they have maintained that. I haven't seen them in 13 years. I presume they have. Seeing them again soon. So, I am expecting less what I saw when I saw Offspring, which was a band that was there and they were having fun and enjoying themselves, but they weren't, they didn't sound like their records and they didn't, there was no energy. There was no propulsion to their music, which is unfortunate because Offspring is very propelling music. Yeah, that hurts my heart. It's very much music you want to get up and move to. And when you listen to it, throw on a CD or turn on Spotify or whatever, you get that from the production value of it. Yeah. But seeing them live, it wasn't there was no propulsion to them. And I don't know if it was because they were had an off day or or what. It wasn't an ama- the amazing concert experience I had been looking that's, forward to. That's disappointing. I've never seen Offspring live. I saw Offspring uh, with Lisa and she had seen them previously and she said it was unusual. It wasn't what she had gotten from them the last time she'd seen them. Though we saw them when we were in our mid-20s and she saw them when she was 16, so it might have been her. Yeah, that's true, too. That made the difference there. But it also could just be that they were having an off day. Like, music like this can't be played at 95%. No. You have to give it 110%. Like you have, to, you have to show up completely. And if something goes even a little bit wrong, the energy of the room gets really weird. Whereas, for example, a Mumford & Sons type affair where it's all a little bit acoustic and a little bit more slowed down anyway, you have more leeway. Yes. Energy-wise. Absolutely. I'm really hoping that seeing them again 15 years later will be more like the ZZ Top experience I had, which is a band that's been playing together for 40 years, give or take. Probably. And they were (laughs) so drunk. When they spoke, you could hear it in the slurred words. But their choreography was perfect. Their music was perfect. Their lyrics were perfect. They were completely in sync and totally on point, despite the fact that they were epically trashed, closing a four-day music festival. Yeah, after Um, 40 years, they know these songs. Right? So I'm really hoping that they have improved with time and not gotten lazy with time with their live show. No, they're going to be great. We're going to see them. They're going to be terrific. We're going to see Rise Against. They're going to be terrific. I will say for the record, I absolutely see why these dudes are opening for Rise Against. Yeah. Like there is a distinct through line there. I'm just wondering about Rancid, which is the other band playing that night. Is Rancid night. the other band? Yeah. Oh my it's, god. It's three decades I it was, of punk. I thought it was Anti-Flag. Maybe it's Anti-Flag. Either way, it's three... Yes, yeah, three punk bands from three different decades. Three different decades worth of punk. 
And it's like, the way it's billed on the poster is Anti-Flag, and then AFI, and then Rise Against. So, in order of decade, right? Anti-Flag came first, and then AFI, and now Rise Against, but... Should prove to be a very interesting evening. Yeah, but it shares it shares the very energetic, very guitar forward attack music, but in a very manicured, produced sort of way. Vibe with Rise Against. Like the Venn diagram between who likes these two bands is very likely a circle. Yeah. Possibly with a smaller circle inside. <laughs> yeah. They around their third <clears throat> studio release, they changed so their first album is answer that and stay fashionable which came out in 95 and it's very much that bouncy high school punk very proud of you came out a year later and it's similar thematically but you can distinctly see an evolution in just in like one year you can see a change their third album shut your mouth and open your eyes is 97 and they've again evolved a little bit Black Sails in the Sunset, which came out in 99, is the first album that's anthemic. So it has that opening track that isn't really a song. And every album after that has had one of those. Nice. And they usually open their show with it. Do they open uh, all of their albums now with a instrumental track? I believe so. I haven't heard Burials or their self-titled album, which were the most recent two. Hmm. The last one I heard was Crash Love, which... So, Black Sails, Art of Drowning, Sing the Sorrow, December Underground, and Crash Love all open with an anthemic song at the beginning, and they open their show with it. And, like, it works. Carter USM did the same thing for a lot of their records. They would open with, like, a softer instrumental track to kind of ease you into the experience that you were about to have. Yeah. And then attack you on the second track. Yes. And it is an effective bit of construction for a record to do. They're also... I've enjoying using the quiet, loud, quiet, loud dynamic from um, 90s punk and grunge bands, but they're putting a weird spin on it. They're doing, like, the song loud, and it builds 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 and then goes really quiet for the bridge and then builds back up, which is a fun spin to put on it. Like, it's in line with the bands that came before, but being applied in a really unique way. To me. Or maybe all of these mid-2000s bands did that, and I'm giving AFI too much credit. But they're the first one that I have heard doing this. Fair enough. So they get 100% of the credit, and every band (laughs) that I hear doing this going forward, in my brain, will immediately register as doing an AFI thing. (laughs) Cool. Um, The other nice thing, uh, and it's a quirk of biology, if you play a drum beat that sounds like a heartbeat every single person who hears it if you play it long enough which is about two minutes which is about how long that song is their hearts will beat in sync with that drum beat so you if you open a show with a piece of music like that you have instantaneously put your entire audience in exactly the same place yeah we are now one organism we are one organism our hearts are beating the same and we are about to enter this yeah. world that you are going to create for us. We are the maximum amount of here with you. Exactly, which is a really effective way of putting a specific spin on what you want out of a live show because you are automatically, as an audience member, part of a community even though you know no one. 
and it's it's a very unifying and uh connective experience yeah and punk rock depends on that punk rock needs for you to be there for it there are definitely genres of music or artists that you can appreciate with a level of clinical detachment i am deeply emotionally connected for example to david byrne but if somebody told me that they like him and appreciate what he's doing without ever connecting to him emotionally I get it. You can absolutely appreciate his bag on a purely academic level. He was fascinating. He was really interesting to look at, right? Yeah, like I described that concert, because we saw David Byrne, what, two months ago, three yeah. months ago? Yeah, take. I have described that concert to people as not being a concert, that it was art. It was like a theatrical production. Yeah, it was a piece of performance art that happened to be put on by a dude who had a, a bunch band. of pop albums yeah. behind him. Yeah, and... The motion and the action and the independent musical instruments that did not tie a single person to a single spot was very interesting to look at. I have no emotional connection to David Byrne. Yeah, you have no history with that. But it was a very interesting and dynamic experience that I very much am thankful for. Yeah, like it was almost a theater piece. And it was it was beautifully done. Yeah. Punk rock is nothing like that. Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. You need to breathe and sweat and feel it. Yeah. In unison with everyone in the room, or else it is essentially worthless. Yeah. It's part of the reason I wanted you to hear AFI before you saw AFI. To have even a tenuous connection to the band before going into a room full of people who have not seen this band in 15 years. Because they don't come here very often. I yep. think they've been here once, been to Western Canada once since I saw them, and I don't know that they've been to Calgary. We had to road trip to Edmonton to see them. Well, we're going to see them now, which um, is great, because this is drive fast, take chances. Like, this is good music for a road trip, actually. It's drive fast, take yeah. chances music. It's good for road trips. It's good for video games where you race cars. It's good for skydiving scenes in action movies in 2005. It's good for skateboard videos on YouTube. One of their songs shows up on Tony Hawk 3, the video game, which is a bike trick skateboarding video game. Listeners at home, I'm making the least surprised face. (laughs) Very much so. Like, Um, this is... Great music for the soundtrack to a video game. Yeah, especially like, a Tony Hawk video. Any kind of extreme sport, this is an appropriate soundtrack to. Yeah, it's extreme sports, an action sequence, anything where there's a lot of adrenaline. And you need to have a chorus where one person screams one line, and then the other person screams the other line, back and forth. Which, by the way, I am a sucker for. <laughs> every single time. It is... Such a simple thing to do to your punk song, but it's also so great when, like, 4,000 people are doing it with you. It sounds so good. AFI has been listed as the 22nd of 25 most influential punk bands. I kind of buy it. Like, they sound very much like this era, but the record that I'm listening to from this era, where they sound very contemporary, is like their fifth record. So, there is zero denying that they got there first. Yeah, they uh, they definitely paved the way for other bands that sound like this. Notably, Rise Against. They were definitely 
an influence for them. They had an interesting experience in 1999. Offspring covered one of their songs for the Me, Myself, and Irene soundtrack. And, uh, yeah, the song that shows up on Tony Hawk Pro Skater 3 is The Boy Who Destroyed the World, neither of which are on this album. But I would highly recommend you listen to them. They're both amazing. Mental note. But to be covered by the band that owns the label that you are on... That's a good position for a band to be in. Is like it's an amazing place to sit where it's like Offspring covered the Ramones. Yep. In Idle Hands. So to have a band with their own record label, a huge catalog and a giant following cover one of your songs is super impressive. Yeah. AFI covered one of my favorite Nine Inch Nails songs. They do an amazing cover of Head Like a Hole. I gotta look that up. Like too. Freaking amazing. And sounds absolutely nothing like Trent Reznor, which is a really nice thing for a cover. Yeah, that's what I want from a cover. I don't <laughs> need for you to sound like the original. I can listen to the original literally any time. Exactly. So these are guys were on Offspring's label. They are from Southern California? Yes, they are. Yeah. That was very clear. <laughs> the dude singing sounds real, real SoCal. Uh, on a number of the tracks. Uh, Silver and Cold, especially. But I didn't know because this record came out in 2003. Yes. And I stayed away from information about this band. Yep. Other than my take on the music itself. Whether they were actually from Southern California, or if he, releasing music in the 2000s, sounded like he was singing with a Southern Californian accent because he had grown up listening to SoCal bro-punk. Oh, gotcha. In the same way that Billy Joe from Green Day sounds British when he sings, because he grew up listening to, like, 70s, 80s UK punk. Yeah. J.B. Havoc was born in Rochester, New York. He is Italian. Uh, after his dad died uh, when he was five, they moved to Ukia? U-K-I-A-H, California? Sure. That's probably in the southern part. Probably. Uh, he went to UC Berkeley. Though he did not graduate from UC Berkeley. <laughs> he doesn't need to. He's a rock star. Uh, yes. He, he had this record in 2003, and it was an enormous hit. And then probably, I'm going to say his next three records were enormous hits. Progressively smaller hits than this one, but yes. That is what guitar-based music from 2003 to 2005 did. Yeah. Um, you would have your biggest record between those years, and then play out the crowd that you had developed in order to make way for... Mostly club jams, which I didn't agree with, but I'd never been consulted. And then club jams were in charge of the radio from about 2009 till about 2014, 2015. Fair enough. Fair enough. There was a quote I wanted to share with you, and now I can't find it. Oh, there it is. Davey Havoc was described by uh, Alternative Press as uh, a bona fide rock god. Davey Havoc is the lead singer and lyricist. Nice. bad. And he's he's a dynamic individual to just, like, watch. He captivates your attention standing at a microphone doing nothing but singing. Like, I have, like, a clear image in my head of Silver and Cold live. And the band behind him is going nuts playing. And he's just standing there singing. And... Captivating. Yeah. Like, absolutely captivating. That's a picture that's in your mind 15 years later. Yeah. Like, the people on the floor were going absolutely <clears throat> fucking insane. 
and everyone in the audience, like, who wasn't on the floor, was looking at him. Like, not looking around or taking stock of what was going on in their immediate vicinity or looking at the floor. Yeah. Looking at him and all he was doing was standing there with his hands around the microphone singing. Well, that's the thing about straight-edge punks. They're incredibly healthy. (laughs) Yeah. And also, they're guaranteed to never show up high or hungover. This is very true. There is a focus to the adherence of the straight-edge movement within punk that is lacking in most musical genres because one of the tenets of that is to remove the things that might make you a worse performer from your life. Yes. Audio Slaves took a break every half hour in an hour and a half long set. Oh, Audio Slave. Yeah. Oh, that's... To which Alex's comment uh, while we were watching the show was, that's roughly how often you need to snort cocaine while doing a live show. Hey, there's a lot to be said about that kind of rock star, too. It was definitely an interesting show. That was definitely a show I bought tickets for for someone else. Because I was not a huge Audio Slave fan, but it was still a good show. Yeah. It's interesting that they formed as early as they did, because I was, in my notes, I don't think that AFI could have produced this album in the tail end of the 1980s, but they could have produced an album with these songs. Yes. It would have been produced differently, and it would have sounded differently, but, for example, Girls Not Grey, that opening guitar line, would have sounded just fine with, like, a raunchy... (laughs) <laughs> Los Angeles production sheen over top of it, like a Guns N' Roses type vibe. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely would have. In the late 1980s, Davy Havoc was 14. <laughs> yeah, but we're positing time travel for this, obviously. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, yeah, he was born I'm, in 75. I'm just saying that these guys sound of their time, but also not tied to it. Yes, very much so. But um, there's a quality to this music that would have made itself apparent, no matter when it came out? Yeah. Davy Heaven was born in 75, so he's 43. That would seem to be correct. And he looks 28. But yeah. that's the upside of a straight-edge vegan lifestyle. He, yeah, he takes care of himself <laughs> with relentless uh, yes. commitment. Yeah. AFI stands for uh, A Fire Inside, which is the title of one of their EPs. Oh, nice. Now, I will ask, because of the period in which this was released. Uh-huh. Time to play a game uh, that we on the show like to call, Is It Emo? (laughs) AFI. Is it emo? It has been described as emo. Okay. It has been described definitely as emo punk, among other things. And some of it is very emo. It very much has that over-emoting quality to it. Uh, It has been described as punk rock, horror punk, grunge punk, Pop punk, hardcore punk, skate punk, post-hardcore, emo, screamo, alternative rock, and goth rock. Well, I've mentioned emo, skateboards, and grunge over the course of this interview, so I think I've offhandedly (laughs) referred to at least three of those. I always forget when listening to the bands under the loose emo umbrella that it was as much of a pop genre as it was a punk or a metal genre as it was coming out, because this whole record, Melody, is very much front and center, but with enough punk thrash behind it that you could start two competing mosh pits moving in opposite direction, creating a figure eight. Something that I presume will not be happening with quite the same 
um, enthusiasm as the people who bought this record are now ages that start with a three or a four. Yep, that's, <laughs> that's very true. Though, I, this is one of Kat's favorite bands, and Kat is thirty or 23 years old. Nice. Right. So, Good for them for keeping it modern. They're, they're, and I guess I shouldn't like trash aging punks, the median age in the mosh pit when we saw Stiff Little Fingers was mid-50s. Yeah. That was the oldest mosh pit. Yeah. It gave me so much life. And they were just giving it. Yeah, they fucking Oh, they were so were. happy to be there. Yeah. And they all didn't move the next day. But I love okay. when someone significantly older than me <laughs> is awesome in public in a way that I get to see. It really gives me hope for my own future. Yes. <laughs> yes, very much so. If I can still kill it in a mosh pit when I'm 45 or 55. I mean, like, I can't kill it in a mosh pit right now. Let's be completely real here. I segued out of the time where my body was too physically large and I had to stay out of the mosh pit for fear of hurting someone else to the period of my life where I have to worry about the fragility of my own body. So gradually that I didn't even realize it was happening. And I probably should have cared less about hurting people, which now that I'm saying it out loud, <laughs> maybe that's not a good life lesson. Well, you are six foot three. And if you behave in a mosh pit like someone who is five foot two, you're going to hit people in the head with your elbows. That's my issue. And I have so, basically zero spatial awareness. Yeah. As well. So maybe staying out of the mosh pit through my 20s was not the worst decision I ever made. No, it probably wasn't the worst decision you ever made. Having been in a mosh pit or very mosh pit adjacent, recently they're dangerous they're very dangerous but like in a way that i was all over at 16 17 yeah when i was still this height but about 100 pounds thinner than this fair yeah <laughs> fair enough yeah you would have People hit somebody in the head and they would have popped back up and punched you or picked me up and then thrown me across the crowd or that I was yeah crowd surfing age at that point in my life and it was during the period where they were not cracking down on that shit yet. That is very true. Though, it still remains the fastest way to get out of a mosh pit. That's a fact. <laughs> that is a fact. They'll just move you to the edge of the mosh pit and drop you off. And you can dive back in. It's fine. It's all good. Yeah. Mosh pits. Strange experience. I spent most of my concert going years on the periphery of mosh pits. Oh, watching them? Watching them. There's a fun dynamic to them. Yes. And I'm very fond of watching mosh pits from above. Yeah. And seeing how they move. If you've got, like, this particular band, seeing that two circle pits moving, and, like, you've got the guys in the middle who are, like, pushing and doing that very contact sport part of moshing, and then the people on the outside who are forming the pit itself. The circle around him, yeah. The circle around it, but they're moving, and those people are moving in circles in opposite directions, while the people in the middle are contact sport moshing. Not a single person broke that circle, and they were contained, and everyone around them was not still, but not involved. It was an extraordinarily dynamic thing to watch. Now, because the period of my life is spent in a mosh pit, I was in my teenage years and had very little self-awareness, I will ask, is the dude in the middle of the mosh pit directing the other person? 
Sort of? Like, the guy in the middle pushing, he's in charge of the general flow of the mosh pit, yeah? By the virtue of the fact that he is usually the biggest dude doing the most pushing? Yeah. Yes. Okay. I didn't think about that at the time while I was in a mosh pit. I would just jump in and then allow things to go ahead of me. Yeah. But I guess somebody does have to direct the flow. So you could reasonably put on your resume, aging punk kids, experienced mosh pit conductor. (laughs) And that would be meaningful leadership experience as you apply for jobs in management. Which brings us to the end of the show. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite thing to do on this show is to say something ridiculous, not give my guest the opportunity to respond, and then follow it with it, which brings us to the end of the show. So that's what we'll be doing. Uh, I'm going to answer three questions because I answer three questions. Yeah, I'm probably going to listen to this again. It's real good. Excellent. Uh, It's a great slice of punk rock, a genre of music that I love, from a period during which I was not listening to a lot of punk rock that was contemporary. And it has been a joy through doing this show to catch up on that period, because the punk rock from this era within the genre is also excellent. It's just not what I was doing at that time. I will also probably branch out and listen to the rest of AFI's catalog at some point very soon. What was your actual favorite one? My actual favorite one is Art of Drowning, which we have on vinyl. Oh, yeah, we do. I'm going to probably listen to that on vinyl a few times before we go to the show. Like, we're going to see these guys pretty soon. So, yeah, I'm going to listen to some more AFI. That was never in doubt. (laughs) Excellent. Even if I'd hated this record, I would still listen to some AFI going forward. That's very true, because I'm taking it to a punk show. Damn right. (laughs) And uh, we're going to close tonight on The Great Disappointment. That's a good song. It is a good song. Very good song. A lot of the songs are good on this one. Yes. This has been the Soundtrack to a Life. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at SoundtrackCast, SoundtrackCast.com. Like us, rate us, review us, share us, tell your friends about us. If you're a giant AFI fan, tweet me what your favorite AFI song is. We're going to be back in another two weeks with a different record and a different guest talking about something different. I can remember Trapped out so vividly Soft creatures draped in white Like is disgracing me